Hey everyone, it's good to be with you again. And after pressing pause last week, it's it's good to to jump back into our series on Revelation. I was actually I was noticing this week as I was preparing the message that I use that phrase almost every weekend. I think when I come back or every time I preach on Revelation, I say let's jump back in, and that's kind of what it feels like. It feels like the Book of Revelation is uh, with its poetry and its symbols, uh, its its history and the, its Old Testament references. It's moving pretty fast, and we it's like we're trying to get grips each week to better help us understand. Uh, these visions and what it meant, uh, and, and what it meant to the first church, and what it's meant to teach us, and how it's meant to encourage us. But it's like a rushing river each week. Uh, and if you're just stopping in to, to check us out, then hats off to you. If, if you wanna, if you wanna go back to the beginning of the series we started in September, you can look at our website under our media or on our YouTube channel. Uh, and also today, I'd encourage you to, to check out uh, the notes for the message at uh, cachurch.info. Well, guys, Revelation is a is a book full of visions given to John the Apostle while he was imprisoned and exiled for proclaiming Jesus as the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And these words were meant to be an encouragement to him, to the early church, and to you and I. But in that order, first written to the early church and then to you and I. And, uh, and the purpose of these visions, this is from a, a scholar 100 years ago. He said, the purpose of these visions and voices from heaven is obviously to show that the powers of the heavens are mightier than those of the infernal serpent and his associates. His associates. Uh, so the way you and I see things is not the way they truly are. And the story you see now is not the final larger story. Here's what I mean. I'll give you an idea. Uh, Revelation teaches the great reversal that will take place and is, is already taking place behind the veil in this apocalypse. In Aristotle's Poetics, he describes the difference between a tragic drama and a comedic one. In classic Greek stories, tragedy starts off well, like everything is going the way that the protagonist wants. They're saying to themselves, man, everything is great in the world. I'm in control. Uh, I don't see how anything could go wrong. But everyone watching the play and understanding how tragedy works is going, I think it's all about to go wrong. Comedy's different. Comedic drama, classically, uh, it starts low and it ends high. So you might have an impoverished fool who somehow ends up being a king by the end of the story. Um, and you see both of these types of stories, comedy and tragedy, in, in Shakespeare. Tragedy might start off in, in the palace, but it ends in the tomb. Comedy starts off low and ends high. Tragedy high and ends low. These are the, the, the stories of, of the way of the beast, the world, evil, and the way of the church, the saints, those who belong to the lamb. Tragedy for the beast and comedy for the lamb. The beast starts on a high, but will end low. The church starts low in humility, but will end high. That is what Revelation is telling us. And today we're at the point in Revelation in chapters 15 and 16 where these two stories are about to switch places. The saints have been praying for deliverance. The, the beast has been boasting and trying to show off his power. God has been calling out for repentance, uh, first coming in the humility of a lamb, then giving opportunity over and over for repentance. And today we come to the seven bowls of God's wrath. The saints have been praying for deliverance and justice, and now we will see that finally take place. And I will say it, it's, it's foul. And even if we don't take it literally, but just poetically, it's rough. These seven bulls are, are replaying, you'll, you'll notice if you know the story, replaying the, the plagues of Egypt and replaying the delivery of is, Israel from Egypt that's told in Exodus. And so we're going to look at chapter 15. We're going to read through it at first, but we're going to end up looking at 15 and 16 today. Revelation chapter 15 says this, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. 
seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed." After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. All right, well, we, we immediately get the idea here that we are nearing the end of God's work in bringing an end to evil and bringing final judgment, both good and bad, to his creation. In verse 1, we see this final display of wrath is here. These are, these are the last plagues, it says in verse 1. And with them, the wrath of God will be finished. And it's interesting, this is like old Greek drama as well. Seven angels are waiting in the wings, <laughs> angels in the wings, <laughs> anyway, to play their part. And, and, and there's a chorus that needs to be sung first before the angels come on. So while the angels wait uh, and kind of wait on the side before they take the stage, a song is sung. Again, not unlike a Greek play, but in such a, a larger, more magnificent scale than any Greek drama or epic. We hear a song sung by all those who conquered the beast, it says. And this isn't a battle about, about fighting or a war. This is just about resilience. They, they remained faithful to the Lamb. They did not give up and they did not give in. This is the song that John begins to hear back in Revelation 14, 2, where it says, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Well, here we hear the lyrics of that song, which is the song of Moses and the Lamb, it says in verse 3, the song of salvation. It says, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. That statement was a, a push in the face of the emperors of the day. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So here, the, those who belong to the Lamb, who associate with the Lamb, are compared to those who, who followed Moses out of slavery in Egypt. After being released from slavery, God, through Moses, delivered the Israelites through the Red Sea. And immediately following that deliverance from the power of Egypt, Moses and the people of Israel sing a song together. They sing a song about God's deliverance. Standing next to the now calmed Red Sea, they say, "'Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods?' Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And then in, in verse 13 of Exodus 15, it says, they continue in their song, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. See, guys, the, throughout history, the names change, the, the world powers change, Pharaoh, Assyria, Rome, the emperor, Domitian, but the story is the same. God 
delivers and will ultimately deliver from all evil. So the association with Moses and the people of ancient Israel makes complete sense here. Both are accompanied by a show of God's powerful deliverance. And we're about to see plagues that echo the plagues thrown at Pharaoh, but on a much larger scale, a cosmic scale. The angels come from the temple in this vision, in, in this vision implying it, it's a divine work that they are about to do. They're coming out from God's abode. They're given bowls full of wrath. There's smoke coming from the sanctuary, it says in verse 8, implying that God is about to do a great and powerful work. And everything else is put on hold, it says. Nothing else will happen until this is done. This is, this is rough. Again, m- more difficult to, to contemplate in the, in the comfortable culture that we're in now compared to a persecuted culture, a persecuted church that's been calling out for justice. But it's still difficult. Throughout Revelations, we have seen God's mercies offering rescue, a way out, and his mercies display his greatness. But not only do his mercies display his greatness, so, does his, so do his judgments. God's goodness is displayed in both his mercies and his judgments. And the reason that his judgments are good is that his judgments are pure. They're not the judgments we're accustomed to in the way that we live and in our culture. His judgments are unhindered and uninfluenced by public opinion. They are pure and holy. That's why they are holy and sometimes also heavy. But in chapter 16, we see the wrath is hit, that's hinted at at the beginning of chapter 15, the wrath that has been warned about throughout the book is finally poured out in seven bowls. And they're similar to the trumpet blast from chapters 8 to 11 and the seals from chapter 6 to 8, but on a bigger, more complete scale. And they're very similar to the plagues thrown at Egypt in Exodus when Pharaoh refuses to release God's people and keeps them bound in slavery. We read about sores in verse 2 of chapter 16, just like Exodus 9. Water turned to blood in verses 3 to 4, just like the Nile was turned to blood in Exodus 7. And then many, many waters all over are turned to blood. Many times in Revelation, there's, there's a short break, and we, we see one here again, this short interlude of this angel who starts to, to make the statement. Maybe it's sung, we don't know. In verses 5 and 7, this angel says, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, <clears throat> excuse me, true and just are your judgments. Well, why, why this pause? What, what is this angel saying? Well, he's saying this, God, you're not being too rash. Your punishment is not out of control or unwarranted. It is not over the top. It is just right. The beast has caused blood to flow. Those who follow the beast and have, have bought into his, his empire have shed the blood of those who have given their life to the lamb and you are responding properly. Some scholars believe that the reason God turned the Nile to blood in Exodus 7 was in response to the children of the Hebrews being taken to the banks of the Nile and being killed there by the Egyptians. It was God's response. It was what we would call poetic justice. Well, are these plagues literal? Well, like the rest of Revelation, not likely, but that doesn't mean that they're, they are non-events. Whatever they represent, which seems to be a, a poetic, all-encompassing, proper judgment, What the angel is saying is that the punishment fits the crime. And that the weeping, persecuted, murdered church will look on and say, as it says in verse 7 of chapter 16, yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, in verse 8, it says the sun is given an enhanced power to, to, to scorch by the fourth bull. 
Now, this one stands out as different than the other bulls in that it does not actually have an exact equivalent with the plagues in, in Exodus. And whatever it is, it is not an actual burning up of people since they, they still seem to be around to reject him and refuse to repent. This has a symbolic meaning that's difficult to pin down, but it definitely gives an implication that all we would hold to be sustaining and unchangeable and reliable in our universe is called into question. Everything is shaking. In verse 10, we see darkness like an Exodus 10, it, it coming from the fifth bull. In Exodus, this was most likely a judgment on the false god Amon-Ra of Egypt, who was the god of the sun. So to, to black out the sun was a judgment and show that he was powerless. The sixth bull in verse 12 talks about the drying of the Euphrates. Now we have something new happening here. But it reminds us of God's work in the past where God parted the Red Sea or, or stopped the Jordan from flowing. Now he stops the Euphrates River or dries it up. Except this is having the exact opposite effect. The Red Sea and the Jordan were about deliverance. The drying up of the Euphrates would mean an easy attack from the kings of the east, it says, most likely reminding the readers of the ongoing threat of the Parthian army that would try to come across the Euphrates River. They were the most feared army of the day, and we, we, we hear hints of them several times in Revelation. Well, in verse 13, we see the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, and they are, they're still hanging out in the scene. The devil and his two helpers who promote him, and from each of their mouths comes something slimy and off-putting. In verse 13, it says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Three frogs coming out may mean nothing more than there were three mouths and, and one from each creature, each representing the same thing, probably. The frogs were considered unclean. They were slimy. They are a, a good representation of evil spirits. And their job here is probably to blaspheme and to propagate the lies and the influence of the dragon and his beasts. Lies are the ongoing weapons used against God and his people. Notice that the great weapon of Jesus is a sword that comes out of his mouth. Revelation 19, 15 says, it talks about that. And it, it's, not, it's not swung to do physical damage. It's a sword of truth meant to battle the lies of the enemy. From Christ's mouth, a sword of truth. From the devil's mouth, demonic lying frogs, influencing leaders and nations to battle against the lamb. But truth is Jesus' weapon. It's God's weapon. Isaiah 11.4 says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, that represents speaking truth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul writes, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. These are not works of physical wiping out. These are what happens when darkness meets light, when lies engage with truth, ultimately when the truth and lies meet for the first time. In Revelation 19.11, which I mentioned earlier, it says, Then I saw heaven opened. We'll look into this in a few weeks. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The weapon of God is truth. Well, here we come to one of the most anticipated parts of the text, Armageddon. Surprisingly, with no mention of Bruce Willis or Ben Affleck. 
the frog-like spirits have, have called the world to war. It's like there's no more playing games and no more stuff going on behind the scenes. It's time to draw the lines. And they whisper into the ears of the kings and emperors. See, so just as the lamb has called people from all tribes and tongues and nations, the dragon has done the same. And they come for a showdown in verse 14. But notice that this is referred to, this great battle, what's going to happen, is referred to as the great day of God Almighty. In other words, the outcome of this battle is not up for debate. The reason we know that is because the outcome has already been secured. The lamb has already, is already on the throne. He has already lived, died, and been resurrected. Again, nothing is being said in Revelation that has not already been said in Scripture. It is just being said in a different way. The battle, the war, the beginning, and the end are all in his hands. But the church, you and I often need reminding. That's why Jesus says, just at the cusp of this battle in verse 15, just kind of puts this in, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. I'm coming. I'm coming, he says. Live like those who know this. Always be ready and do not give up hope. Do not be like the church in Sardis in Revelation 3, where, who were falling asleep, forgetting their white garments of righteousness placed on them by the Lamb. Be ready. Live for eternity today. Live in light of this revelation. These are the marching orders. These, this is Jesus' pep talk before the battle, before what seems to be an impending final battle taking place at Armageddon, it says in verse 16, which translates into the mountain of Megiddo, which is difficult to point out on a map because there is no Mount Megiddo. However, there is a plain of Megiddo in Israel. It was the location of several great battles in Israel's history. And there's a mountain that pushes up right against the plain that gives a spectacular view of the plain of Megiddo. In fact, I've stood on that mountain and, and I've taken in this spectacular view. That mountain is Mark Car Mount Carmel and it pushes right up and gives the best scenery of Megiddo. And if there's any site in the Old Testament where God showed up in a dramatic way to have a showdown with political power, pulling people away and denying God, it was Mount Carmel looking over Megiddo. In response to God's people rejecting him and, and worshiping false gods, the prophet Elijah had commanded it to stop raining. Again, this was in hopes that there would be repentance by the king and by his wife, who had done all she could to, des to destroy the worship of Yahweh and establish a new religion of Baal, of which she was the head priestess. And God sends Elijah, and he finally asks all of Israel to show up after two years of drought, two years of no rain, which was meant to get the attention of the people and bring about repentance. Sounds like revelation. Elijah invites everyone, all of Israel, all of the prophets, all of the, the leaders have a showdown where, where both will come and pray and call on their gods and see who is powerful and who will show up with fire and who will win. And the people follow. And, and when they arrive in 1 Kings Chapter 18, Elijah says this, verse 21. He says, and Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. See, Baal was seen as the God of the enemy, the darkness, the devil. And here God's people have quietly gone along with worshiping him. And if you know the story, you know that God shows up consuming an entire altar of stone covered in water, consumes the stone and the sacrifice from fire from heaven. It sounds apocalyptic, but in this case, it, it actually happened and people repented. Now back to Armageddon. 
Notice that all the kings in the whole world show up for battle in verses 14 and 16. And God's response to the saints is basically, just keep your clothes on, don't stress, I've got this. <laughs> the saints aren't even there, it doesn't even mention them. As, as the anger of the world mounts and the wrath of God is poured out, the army of the beast is armed and ready. Do you remember what the saints are doing? They're not, they're not holding weapons. Back in verse two of, of chapter 15, they're singing somewhere, they're rocking out with harps. Why? Because the battle's won. You don't even need to fight. The blood of Christ was already spilt for your battle to be won. So I'm sorry, militant Christians. <laughs> he doesn't need your help to destroy the evil one. Uh, it doesn't really look like he needs any help. If we see in verses 17 to 20, all, all the Holy One needs is to speak a few words and the battle's over. Verse 17 of chapter 16 says, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne. There's no question who this is. This is Yahweh. It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. The city representing the world and its ways is destroyed and there is nowhere left to run. This is a destruction of the old system built on oppression and relationship breaking, self-indulgence, war and rebellion against God. We see hailstones at, at the end. Again, one of, one of the plagues of Egypt, but this time big enough to take down a, a city made up of all the nations of the earth. <laughs> They are the size of, of catapult boulders taking down the walls of a massive city. Resistance is futile. Now, here's the thing, and I think we learn a lot here. What is the response of the world here? We see it at the end of verse 21. They cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Rejection throughout Revelation has always been about hatred, not about ignorance. In all of Revelation, God cannot be ignored. Everything that happens is so over the top to get the attention of all of creation. God's holiness, his anger, his I've had it up to hearedness with sin is unavoidable, impossible to be ignored. And yet, here we have in these verses, and, and this should be heartbreaking, the response is not repentance, it's cursing. The response from the fourth bull through to the seventh bull is cursing. Notice, and this is important in John's revelation, it's not from a lack of evidence that anyone denies God in Revelation. It's not why they deny God or the Lamb or his gospel. It is a love and a desire for the world and all that it offers. Nowhere in Revelation is there an issue of someone being judged because they didn't have enough information or they grew up in a difficult home or they never heard the gospel or there, there wasn't ample proof for God's existence. Instead, there's an ongoing cry. The ongoing cry is, leave me alone, I will not bow to you. Leave me alone, I will live for today. I will, I will step on the poor, I will strive for wealth, I will do with my body, created in your image by the way, to do whatever feels good to me. I will enjoy the God-denying gifts of Babylon. I answer to no one. See, part of the unveiling that is happening in John's apocalypse is the revelation that saying, I answer to no one, is tantamount to saying, I answer to the beast. I devote myself to the beast. So what do we do with this today, guys? I know it's like drinking from the fire hose again. I, I think there's two messages I, I would have us take from today. 
And it would be this, we need to be ready and we need to be aware. We need to be ready, we need to be aware. In Matthew chapters 24 to 26, Jesus gives a handful of parables to explain what the kingdom of God is like. And each one ends with the challenge of being ready, living in light of eternity today, being ready for Christ's return. In, in chapter 24, verse 42 of Matthew, it says, therefore stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Be ready. Do not give up hope and do not live camped out in this age. There is a lot of confusing imagery in Revelation and therefore a lot of debate in Revelation. What beasts and horns and colors mean? What do the numbers mean? How do we interpret them? But every person that I, even I adamantly disagree with on how Revelation ought to be interpreted agrees on this. Whatever revelation is interpreted, whatever, whether it's with an eye on the past or whether an eye on the future, the ongoing message of revelation is be ready. Do not give up and do not give in. Live a life anticipating his return. Secondly, we need to be aware. I think it's a, a continued call to evaluate if we are living for Babylon or the eternal city. Be aware how we are drifting in big and small ways into the wrong story and how we view ourselves, the condition of the world, but also all the way down to how we love and pray for the world, how we interact and pray for our society, our culture, the pandemic, our politicians. The way we respond to these things is directly related to whether we find ourselves living in a tragedy or in a comedy. Let's pray. God of grace, I... I pray that as we, maybe over the next few hours and even over the next few days, as we kind of um, take in what we've, we've learned today, I pray you would do a real work in us through your spirit, that you would counsel us and you would comfort us. I pray for encouragement and resilience as we look at the world that can, that can put pressure on us to give in or give up that we would be reminded of this larger vision, this larger apocalypse, this larger unveiling of what's going on behind the scenes and continually be reminded that there is more going on to the story. Secondly, God, I pray uh, for myself, I pray for this, your church, for all of us listening, that, if, that you would do a work in us where we would, if there's, if there's areas where we need to repent, where we've given in, uh, in big and small ways, whether that has to do with our finances, whether it has to do with our thought life, whether it has to do with how we spend our time, what we worry about, what we fear, then if we need to turn from the, the story that's leading to tragedy towards the uplifting comedy, uh, the, the lifting up of the gospel, the, then do a work in us and, and, and we confess that to you and we return to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I love you, miss you, can't wait to see you face to face. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and may he give you his eternal peace until he returns. Amen.